Hey, welcome to the Allison Park Leadership Podcast, where we talk about the principles behind the plans. Uh, I'm one of your hosts. My name is Dave. And my name is Jeff, and we're glad you joined us for this episode today. So we're both, of course, on staff at Allison Park Church and father and son, and, and we're glad you've joined us. So do we have any shout outs? We for do. Okay. okay. As always, we wanted to say a, a big thank you to a few people here who left us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. We want to say thank you to uh, Leah Bluemaker, to Ken Sudo, to Lulu and Todd, probably, <laughs> and then to Joe RN. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you for joining in on this episode. And if you want your own shout out, just go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five star review, and we'll hit you up next episode. Yeah, we really appreciate that. Um, so mentioning this each time, uh, every, every time we've had one, we've almost had, uh, you know, three or four. So we really do appreciate your engagement with us. Uh, I love when I hear from, from somebody either in person or by email, or you leave some comment on our YouTube page or whatever, um, just interacting with us about the content. That's just really great. We do want it to be a discussion, right? So it really does help us whenever you're, you're interacting with us. Thank you so much for that. Absolutely. Yeah. So today uh, we are going to be talking about discipleship. Yeah. Basically working title will be false prophets, fake Christians, and the failure of modern discipleship. There you go. <laughs> Long mouthful. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I mean, this probably, this well, this conversation started in a few places. W- one of the first places, though, that I think is intriguing to talk about is uh, a dream that you had. Yeah, so maybe before we get into the dream, I think we are all still in this process of coming out of the pandemic, realizing that there have been some things exposed during sure. this time okay. that... that that uh, we have come to understand. I was just having coffee with a pastor here here in Pittsburgh who pastors a significant church uh, in the South Hills, and we were both lamenting some of the challenges that we're facing, especially when we're talking about trying to make mature Christians, you know, because this is the, the, the central command of Jesus to his followers is to go into the world and make disciples. So it's like the one thing Jesus actually commands besides love one another is to make disciples. And, and so this is our assignment, and especially as church leaders, it's our assignment. And this pastor said, I think we discovered in 2020 that we, as a church, have been a little more focused on making attenders or attendees than we are making disciples. We're good at making church attenders, and even that's been affected to some degree, right? Mm. But not so good at making disciples. So what does it take to make a disciple is kind of the question. And is the modern Western church doing a good job at, at that. I heard so, um, I heard the word discipleship recently explained by John Mark Comer as, I think he was quoting Dallas Willard actually, but as apprenticeship. Right. So his, if you're not as familiar with this, it's the idea of being an apprentice to Jesus where you live a life that is learning from him and trying to live in the way that he lived. And I was, I, you know, as we were talking about the topic, I was tempted to call it the corporatiz- corporatization of discipleship. Uh, meeting, I think one of the things that's happened, probably the pandemic exposed this. It's another one of the, I don't think the pandemic caused this, yeah. but it, it's it's that we had a system and a process um, for what it looked like to to help create disciples. Maybe it was creating attenders, you know, but it was like, yeah. it was like attend church, um, get in a life group, serve, tithe, you know, to, to missional giving Which are campaigns. all parts of what it takes to be mature, right? Right. They're components. But I guess I guess you could say it like this, and I think I preached these t- 
type of terms several years ago when I was wrestling through some of this, and that is we tend to produce cultural Christianity yeah. rather than Christ followership. Right. Cultural Christianity is where people know the calisthenics of their faith. You go on Sunday, you sing these songs, here's when you stand, here's when you sit, here's when you listen, here's how you give, here's how you go through the programs of the church, and along with that comes all of the culturalisms of you know being an evangelical born-again believer in Jesus Christ and and you know these are the kinds of things this is how you sort of dress and this is how you respond and uh, but if it doesn't really hit the core of your life that's changing your character your behaviors your attitudes your responses and i guess a big one your understanding of the bible yeah for sure and living according to the truths that are taught there especially in the new testament as we learn to follow jesus if it's not really becoming intrusive to the way that you live your life and transforming you, then really what we are producing is people who understand how to do the church thing or the Christian thing, but not necessarily really grappling with what it is to be the take up your cross, deny yeah. yourself, follow Jesus type of people. And and so... Can I put that another way too? Yeah, sure. I think I think what I'm seeing, and it's not just with people that are attenders, I think it's with, with pastors too, Yeah, but you're seeing this public face of what it looks like to be a public Christian that never actually affects the private life. Yeah. And it's like a bunch of empty cardboard boxes that have the outside look as like, look, look what's Ooh. full. You now know? you're getting then, into that Jesus whitewashed walls, right? <laughs> right. And then as soon as, as soon as any impact hits it, there's nothing in it to support the box. Ooh, wow. You know? Okay. Go Dave. <laughs> Not trying to... <laughs> well, yeah. there is some there is some stats on this. So there was a survey that was done by George Barna and the Arizona Christian University, and they used 54 criteria of what it was to have a biblical worldview, to so to have a healthy theology. And um, what the study revealed is that only 37% of Christian pastors in the United States have a true biblical worldview. Yeah. And, and there were very troubling stats um, amongst the various staff roles. So... Um, and this is no shot at, at children's and youth pastors, but 12% of them had a biblical worldview, 28% of associate pastors, and 41% of senior pastors yeah. had a true biblical worldview. Now, I know you'd have to dive on that study to really see uh, um, some of the things that are there, um, but that's troubling. That's very troubling. Um, there also was another part of this study that revealed that 69% people who call themselves Christians in the United States of America don't believe that the Holy Spirit is a person. Yeah. So that would mean there's not a real good grasp of the idea of Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, they would see the Holy Spirit as more of a force than a person. So, so there's some really deeply troubling questions about theology, worldview, and then you can see the tribalism and the division and the attitudes that are displayed on social media, and you say, that doesn't look like Jesus at all when you consider some of those things. So the broad picture paints the reality that maybe the Western Church is more in trouble when it comes to discipleship than we are willing to admit to ourselves, and we probably need to have some real devoted attention to, is this methodology that we're using working and what do we need to do to, to change it? So let's back up for a second. Yeah. If somebody's maybe a little bit newer to the faith, to Christianity, like, why is this as big of a problem as we're painting it to be? You know, you're talking about, like, wow, we really need to change our methodology, and, you know, <laughs> their people's theology isn't good, and maybe somebody's listening, like, well, I don't know about my theology, and I'm not, I'm not 
you know, I haven't really gotten all of these disciplines done in my life yet. Like, but why, why is this such an important subject? Or, I mean, really, I guess you could almost call it a crisis when it comes to the, to the Western church. Well, I mean, if we're going to do this thing, don't we want the real deal of, of what it is to follow Jesus? Do we, do we want a cultural substitute for Christianity or do we want to go back to the roots of what Jesus tried to produce in this world after he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and entrusted his disciples with the mission to make disciples? If we're not doing that well, then what are we doing? We actually have substituted something in that may not necessarily be producing the real version of what Christianity is. And I don't know about you, but I don't want a faux version of this, right? So well, I, it, I want a real, the real thing. I want to go back to what is it to really follow Jesus? Because if I'm going to give my life to something, I want to give my life to the, to the, to the real version of what Jesus intended for the church and for Christianity and for his followers to be. Yeah. I think one of the things you just said there is going back to what Jesus asked us to do when we're following him. So I think there is a way to be a type of Christian, quote unquote, what people would call a Christian, that Jesus would not say is a follower of Jesus. It's like, well, that's not what I was telling you to do. Yeah. This isn't how it is to live. And so this is really, not what I believe, <laughs> or this is not what this is not what I have said. You know, if you're distorting what I've said or how I how I live, or you're assigning things to me that I have nothing to do with, right? Yeah. So I think that that is the concern that we have get the pure um you know, undistorted version of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because when we get that, then you get something very potent and it's something not, uh, you know, in any way, um, th- it doesn't make anybody turn away from it for the wrong reasons. Well, it, and I think what's scary is that it's possible to be called a Christian in a cultural sense, but not be Christian at all. Like, it's, it's yeah. not just, it's not just like a, well, it's a better, it's a good and better version, or it's yeah. a mediocre and now, best. Now, now we're not talking about is, are you going to heaven or hell? Because you may be a professing Christian that has experienced salvation because you took the step to give your life to Jesus Christ. But the framework in which you live, and the 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 attitudes you carry, and the pursuits that you're going after, may not necessarily be the way that Jesus wanted us to live. And that's one level. Yeah. But if I can challenge that for a okay. second, there, <laughs> yeah. there are those stories that I mean, Jesus, Jesus tells about, like, you know, they'll say, hey, didn't we do all these things? Didn't True. we go to church? Didn't Matthew we chapter pray? seven. Yep. You know, and, and he will say, Some I will never say, knew Lord, you. Lord, and I'll say, I don't, you know, I don't even know who you are. I guess that's possible. We're not trying to create yes, on you. this podcast, have uh, uh, an unreasonable fear that if you have had, you know, you've had an experience with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you know, he lives inside of you. We're not trying to get you to question your salvation. No. However, we're talking not so much about you, the individual right now. We're talking about the movement of Christianity and the culture that we're in today. And, and what is it as a movement producing, uh, overall? And I I guess we should step back and say too, we love being pastors at Allison Park Church. We don't have (laughs) deep problems with the methodology of Allison Park Church because we're obviously leading it. <laughs> right. We're just more introspectively looking at how are we leading it and what's missing from what we're leading and what are we learning through this time and what needs to change about our approach and what should we be challenging our people to do as a result of what we're learning. Because we we as leaders at Allison Park Church, and if you're a pastor listening to this, I'm sure you in leading the church that you're a part of want to do this well. Yeah. Um, we don't want to just assume, let's go through the motions of what we've been doing for the past 20 years, because maybe maybe what was being done 
20 years ago was more effective, and the world has changed, and the culture has changed. Maybe it's just not effective anymore. Maybe the culture, because it's changed, requires a new methodology that will work in today's generation. And so it may not be a slam on how church has been done, because maybe it had been working before at some point. Potentially. And, yeah, and, and I think I think one of the things about this podcast that's fun is we get to talk about stuff that we haven't figured out yet. Because yeah, right. we're not teaching. You know, you're like, don't you guys know what you're doing? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think a lot of podcasts, you know, they provide show notes because they're teaching through something. Yeah. And for we're us, wrestling through something. Yeah, we're like, it's a big, big difference. <laughs> and actually, we, what we're saying is we want to trust you in a way with what we're wrestling through yeah. so that you can, because you may be wrestling through this too. And, and almost it's comforting to say, I'm glad someone's saying this out loud because I've wondered the same thing. And so we're not approaching this like, well, we have all the answers. We have it all together. We lead the perfect church with methodology that never needs to change. Um, but we may be talking about more tweaks yeah. than organizational overhauls. But we at least are at the process where we're saying we should probably ask these questions. Yeah, I, I so I think when we talk... Part of the title that part of the working title was the failure of modern discipleship, and that might not be an abject failure. Yeah, but I do think that we have. So I don't. I don't know when you would say the shift happened. the The corporatization kind of thing probably started in the mid two thousands, early two thousands. So we have about twenty years. Oh, way before that. You think? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. so I I remember just being in the nineties, and I remember it feeling at least to my. 10-year-old self or whatever, uh, nine-year-old self. I remember it feeling a lot more, uh, I don't know. Well, we went digital during at some point in time, so it became a little bit more, it felt a little bit more um, up-to-date and relevant. But corporate corporate church is something that is poof, 100 years old or more. So I, I guess what I was thinking is I feel like there was, there was a lot of emphasis on the private life and certain things that we maybe lost a little bit of okay. whenever I was growing up. All right. And, and maybe that's because I just was in your house and you mm-hmm. were talking about this stuff, but I don't know. Anyway, so where do you want to start with this? I mean, we, we have your dream that we could talk about. We have some of the things that we think have led us to this point, the history and our methodologies and stuff. Where where do you want to take us? Yeah, so um, why don't we talk about the context for how discipleship happened? Let's do it. Great. Okay, so I just... I just did a talk with some of the, we have a local pastors network here that meets on a monthly basis. And I talked to the lead pastors of what I saw as the various contexts for that are involved typically in, in the discipleship process. So the first one is the classroom. So one way that discipleship happens is if you sit in a classroom and you get a teaching. Yeah. We typically do this kind of discipleship when we're in the induction process. Someone's entering the church, they go through a next steps process or a growth track, and they get some DNA things and some basics. They learn about what water baptism is and what communion is and what it is to be saved. And so it's more of a lecture style. Okay, so that's one. Second is in community. Probably most churches are relying on this as their primary discipleship method because right, yeah. you want to get into life groups and you want to be life on life and you want to be doing life together, studying the word together, praying for each other, and doing life in community. Then, the, then the then the third is coaching, where you get you get somebody that you're developing as a person or as a leader, and you're one on one with them and you're giving them feedback as to, as to how they're growing. And then I add a fourth. Um, context for discipleship, and this is what I would call the catalytic experience. This is where, you know, we've talked on the podcasts 
past, Dave, where you talked about going to Nicaragua and praying for a guy who couldn't see and cataracts disappeared from his eyes. Mm-hmm. That it's a catalytic, ex- catalytic experience where you left there and you're like, I'm never going to be the same. I won't look at prayer the same. I won't look at mission the same. I won't look at Jesus the same. Like this changed me once and for all. And I now realize Christianity is way more than just uh, going to church every week. Right. Or uh, for all of you guys and our five kids that we raised, when you were like 11, 12, we would send you to Mexico with my mom and dad to work at an orphanage on a missions trip. And that was a catalytic experience. You guys came back different. You're like, I, yeah. I didn't know that some people lived this way. And man, I want to do something with my life that counts. And so some discipleship happens in these moments of catalytic experience. Then, so we're in the we're doing alliteration with C. Then there's the content that has to be inserted into all of those: the classroom, the community, the coaching, and the catalytic experience, so that what is in those moments is actually biblical and true and the real teachings of Jesus, so that we're actually confronting people with the truth that they would need to grow. Now all of those things are operational within our methodology. But I'm questioning if we're getting the content there, right? If if people are genuinely... Because here's what seems to be happening, and that is our culture is less and less biblically literate. Most of the people that are finding Jesus and coming to Christ, therefore, have less of an understanding of genuine Christianity or the, or the truths of the Bible. And does... Are, does all of the discussions in these moments, are they robust enough to where people are maturing in their understanding of God's Word? Obviously, the stats say that most Christians are lacking biblical truth in their worldview, and the, and the, and the way people are acting toward each other shows that many people are lacking the understanding of what it is to be Christ-like to someone you disagree with, and becoming more and more tribal in the way that they think. So, obviously, we're doing the same things, but it isn't taking the same grip. And is this because, is this because the church is done is broken? In in I'm not talking about Alice Park. I'm talking overall. Or is it because there's just so many competing messages that are out there? Like like people give less and less time to their spiritual life yeah. than they ever had before, and they're giving more and more time to other pursuits and influences, and so. You know, what's your take on it? why is it not working the same way? Well, I think I think a, a <laughs> lot of the stuff that you just said is is it's it's a bunch of factors, right? I mean, the digital age we live in, which has sped up year over year, you know, even after the pandemic, it feels like we're even more online than we had. I mean, honestly, even just weird side so, note. So why is it that people are less biblically literate today? Okay, so Here's what I think. Here's what I think the main thing is. Maybe this is a content thing, but I don't know. It could be a methodology thing, too. I don't think that we are necessarily teaching people. Okay, I don't know. I don't know if I need to back up on this. I'll say it and then I'll back up. I don't know that we're teaching people how to do the spiritual disciplines, specifically like praying and reading your Bible well, especially reading your Bible. Um, I think like one of the big focuses that I've seen as I've been in ministry and even before that, you know, maybe as a teenager and in college and stuff, huge, huge focus on um, what do we call it? Taking out Christianese, like, which is good. I, I'm fully for that. But like, let's remove barriers from 
people that are first coming to church so that they can be a part of what we're doing without having to be like, what the heck is the blood of the lamb? And, yeah. <laughs> you know, sanctification. And just like, you know, we, we used to maybe throw out words that were very Christianese without thinking about it. So we've tried to, to make that a little simpler. But I think potentially as a part of that, what I've, what I've noticed with church culture in general in the West is everybody, whether it's at our local church or it's churches online or it's, you know, celebrity pastors or whatever, the, the sound bites you're going to hear, they're breaking it down so much. Here's what you need to know. Here's what the Word says. But we're not really teaching people how to read it for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like we've we've taken out every barrier to entry. Here's what it is. But I'm, I, I don't know. I, I think that piece is lacking. Like, well, is and the... I think there's something a little bit more to that. So it's like we've become so in our corporatiza- corporatization. In corporatization. Yeah. yeah, there you go, that word. <laughs> it's <laughs> a hard word. The church. We have become very customer service focused in the way that we deliver yeah, the exactly. goods and services of ministry. Yes. So we're thinking about our audience and we're thinking about how to communicate to our audience and we're thinking about how to say it in a way that they're going to receive it. And we're going to try to market the series in a way that makes people motivated to attend. And everything is being done to say to people, you, as you come to church, we're trying to present this in, to you in a marketed way that makes this the most pleasing to you when you receive it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let me contrast that to the 1970s era I grew up. I grew up with a dad who was a pastor, and here was what we said. You will go to church. You'll go to church on Sunday morning, and then a few hours later, I don't care if the Steelers game is on, you will go to church on Sunday night. You will be in youth group. Um, And honestly, the quality control in the 1970s of the way church was doing things was not the same as it is today. I mean, it's almost in some ways, you look back and the services were longer and there was way more messiness involved and less precision and it wasn't as marketed. And it wasn't like there was any one singular message that I even remember from the 1970s, but the cumulative effect of the discipline of putting the time in, being there Sunday morning, being there Sunday night, being in youth group, going to prayer meetings, being at conferences, all the inconvenienced aspects of my upbringing, as well as then being challenged by my youth pastor to develop my own personal devotional life, embedded in me so much biblical knowledge because I had so much invested in my Christian walk. Now, you can actually have a, a lot of things delivered to you in very pleasing manners and have very little invested in your own spiritual development. Absolutely. And so some of it isn't necessarily that the content is bad or even incomplete. It's that maybe the way that we do it isn't demanding enough yeah. for people to actually... Because you, you basically get out what you put in. Yeah. And the more if you're if you're putting in very little and expecting a lot out, you're probably not going to actually be very mature. So like this is like how would Jesus market to you Matthew 16. By the way, if you would like to, you could take up your cross. Yeah. <laughs> if it's convenient. Like you know, we don't want to inf- interfere with your schedule at all, but you should deny yourself. Yeah, with like, your kids sports <laughs> or with your yeah, like, with your TV shows. And, and this is not putting right. Okay, I realize everybody's carrying a heavy burden and there's financial pressure and you got sure. school issues and you got family stuff going on. At some point, 
you have to say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, which is going to be my first priority in life. Yeah. And I'm going to go after this because I really want to be a Christ follower. And I think that maybe we're so customer service friendly and convenience oriented in the way that we sell everything, so to speak, that we aren't demanding enough. And it's almost against the grain for me even to say that because I really want to provide ministry in a way that serves people where they are without them feeling guilty all the time. Sure. But at the same time, there is a challenge that needs to be put out there to say, if you want to grow spiritually, you got to put something in, like really put something in. So can I can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. Why why is that such a I've noticed that's a value for you. <laughs> Avoid like keep guilt away as much as possible. And I understand guilt and condemnation <laughs> are not from Jesus, but like you have sometimes like you're like really, really being cautious. Did you have experiences like this growing up? Was there a lot of no, heavy that, guilt used or I think that's just my nature to be more on the encouragement end than on the challenge end. Because I think I, I'm I'm definitely like you in that, but I maybe it's because I'm naive and haven't done it. I think ministry. the other thing is I wanna if I'm gonna challenge somebody, I don't want to do it out of shame or pressure. I want to do it with a well thought out yeah. um appeal and then to put the push on. Mm. Okay. I think I'm arriving at some things that I'm ready to go there with. Sure. Okay. There, there are actually two in particular that I think we at Allison Park Church are getting ready to say, all right, let's do this now. Is that going to shift the conversation? Because I have one more thing to say before okay. we go there. Should we let that be the tease and we'll come yes. back around we'll, to we'll that? Come, we'll come back to that. Okay. I, I just think, so to me, I realize I am going... So did you just call me a, a pastoral wimp? Is that what no. they say? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. But but I, I do think I do think like... What I am saying is some, and this is, this is not a you thing in general. I think this is in gen, like you definitely. The reason why you tend to stay away from guilt and stuff, I do think, is because you are an encourager and everything you just said. That's absolutely true. But there is a greater trend. Like one of the topics that I have for me, that eventually for us to talk about, we, we might do this in October. Is why has the church gone silent on hell? And I you know not everywhere has, but I think the harsh things, the things that are like that might trigger guilt. Or even just like you were just talking, like, hey, and if you want to, take up your cross. That's not an option. <laughs> like, if you're not doing that, you're not saved. Yeah. I mean, like, that's, like, I know that's intense, but praying a prayer is the beginning of the transformation that means you living a lifestyle of apprenticeship, and if the lifestyle is not there, you really actually do need to question, am I following Jesus? And that is a heaven-hell conversation. And I know that's intense to say. I don't want anybody to feel guilty. But there is there is an appropriate level of self-reflection we're commanded to do, yeah. examine your own salvation. Do you know what I'm saying? So, it Yeah, so like there's a the tension between, um, because there's been a lot of spiritual abuse that's come with guilt and shame over the years where people have been beat into a place where they really don't understand how much God loves them, sure. what Jesus has done for them, and that they don't earn their salvation by their performance. And I think if we shift too much into the guilt and shame mode, then we really wreck people's understanding of their identity in Christ and of the confidence that they can have in His love. What I think is needed is not guilt and shame, um, but it is con- Holy Spirit conviction and um an appropriate challenge. Holy Spirit conviction probably brought about by appropriate challenge. Yeah, with 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 sensitively delivered harsh truth. 
Okay, bring do, it. Do you know what I mean? Okay, so harsh truth. I think harsh <laughs> you don't like is harsh. Okay, so <laughs> truth. I think there truth. is truth that feels harsh, but it actually is life giving truth. You're right, you're right. When you adopt it. Okay. So I don't want us to pull the car over and say, now we're going to go down this path of, you know, really getting in people's face and 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 bringing the that that fundamentalist guilt thing back. Yeah, okay. I don't think that's a, a healthy thing. I agree. But you're right, in the in the swing that's gone away from that, where we've become very concerned about, you know, giving people a, a, the right understanding of what salvation is, and that God loves you, and he, it's His grace that saves you, that, that there maybe has been a lack of an emphasis on that very direct challenge that comes with transformative truth yeah. <laughs> that needs to be put in there. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so I do think, uh, you know, one of the... Th- so, okay, you want to go into the two things? Yeah, tell me, okay. so there's two things you're getting ready, you feel you've landed on where you can push them so I hard, think, right? So I think we have come to the to the realization that, that our, if we're going to do discipleship through community, so one of the contexts, I said, there's the classroom, there's the community, there's coaching, and then there's the, there are catalytic moments. I think the thing that's the most lacking in our environment right now is is genuine committed community where people are in a life group but they're in the life group like they're they're truly doing life together and they're challenging each other. So we have a, a segment of our church that's in a life group that has been a longer term life group and they really are in community and they're being discipled there and it's really effective. And that's probably a very small segment of Allison Park Church. And then there's a whole segment that is either opting out of community altogether. They only do weekend events, and or they're in community because we have these sermon-based seasonal groups, and they hit maybe three or four life groups per season, and so maybe that adds up to nine or ten a year. And you can't really grow in community if you attend a a life group, you know, 12 times in a 52-week year. So one of the things we're going to start to say is everybody needs to be in a life group that's a year-round experience. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the life group, you need to be in the life group. So we're talking about challenging the groups to have conversations together about, are we really going to do this? So a couple of commitments, we're, we're borrowing from the Band of Brothers group that Pastor Bruce Edwards had, had helped to start. So if, if you're going to be in it, show up for every group meeting or call off. Number two, go through breakthrough at some point in your life. Number three, if the group serves, serve with the group. And number four, be prepared to lead the discussion at some point in time and make this a priority so that you're doing life with people you're friends with who are challenging you to grow spiritually. I think we need uh, a greater emphasis on true community because I actually don't think that community is is somehow a faulty way of making disciples. I just think we have sort of shallow community in a lot of ways where people are not really doing life together. Well, I think I think we've used community in some ways as like if you don't have friends or if you don't have people you relate to. Yeah. And I think you know then then join one of these groups and I think why some people don't join is because they already have community somewhere else even if it's not Christian community. Right. Maybe it's coworkers or it's people that are into the same hobby, but it's not community meant to challenge you to live like to follow Jesus closer. Yeah. So we're basically saying you need to be in a in a, in a life group. You need to be, and it shouldn't be optional. Jesus started his discipleship process with a small group. Yeah. He picked twelve, and um, 
and you, you know, if we're going to follow Jesus' methodology, then you need to either have your own group that you lead, or you need to be in a group, and you need to be committed to that group because that's where primary discipleship happens. The second challenge, and we're getting ready to set this up as we go into 2023, is uh, version, which is the app so many of us use to do our Bible reading, which is produced by Life Church. what a gift that is to the world, has now provided a way for local churches to have their own spot on version where you can read the Bible together. Yeah. The second thing I want to really challenge people to do is to increase their consumption of God's Word on their own yeah. uh, and to read along with us in this upcoming year, and maybe even to use life groups to keep accountability going for that so that we're reading the Bible together and we're in community and we're reading the Bible together, we're in community. And this, I think, is going to be the key to going deeper spiritually um, in, in, in fixing some of this. But, you know, you asked me the question, um, why, why have I become uh, soft <laughs> Not soft. I think you lean so so heavily towards grace, yeah. And you deliver truth, but you also leave a bottom, like you okay. leave. In a, so you're like, this might not be true for you. You know, maybe you did pray a prayer and it just hasn't manifested in your life, but you are saved. And I'm yeah. like, well, you know what yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I yeah, okay. I'm, I'm probably being a little too intense about it. But. Yeah. All right. So especially when we think about the challenge aspect, let me let me tell you the story about community here at Allison Park Church. So I became the pastor. I became an assistant pastor here in the late 80s. My assignment was to help Allison Park build community, so I was assigned to do small groups. We had moderate success with that early on. Then, you know, gradually I pushed it to where we had groups that were meeting on a regular basis and fairly healthy, but I still felt like we needed to go deeper. And there was a movement in the mid-90s that still exists today called um, G12, Principle of 12. And the idea was, uh, if you're going to make disciples, Jesus was the model. Everybody should have their own 12 disciples. And actually, this was modeled by a church in uh, uh, Colombia. Pastor Cesar Castellano was the pastor. And they grew to 250,000 people and were seeing people saved all the time. And so I heard about this through um, Mel's dad, your grandpa, David Spencer, and they were doing this principle of 12 approach to small groups in Nicaragua, and their church grew to 10,000, and they were seeing all these stories. So I said, well, we're going to do this here. Now, here was what was involved. It was supposed to be, I would get a 12, my 12 disciples, Melody would get her 12, and then every one of those 12 would get their 12. It was like a multi-level pyramid scheme yeah, kind of a MLM. discipleship. <laughs> and then, so, so, but here's what was involved. So we said, come to church on a weekend, be in your 12, so go to your group with your mentor, have your own group, and then once a month do an outreach. So basically three meetings a week, church, be in a 12, have your own group, and then do an outreach. And it was unsustainable for the pace of life in the U.S. And honestly, we put so much pressure on people during that time in 1998 when we were pushing this that we just about split the church. It was intense. And so then we said, this is obviously not working. We're, we're asking people to do something that is not reasonable for the pace of life. Mm. Although I will say, it, it, it is in many cultures that don't have the pace of Western culture, it is incredible what you see happen. It actually is probably the way of the New Testament yeah. to be in someone's discipleship group, have your own 12 disciples. If, if you could say at the end of your life, I made 12 disciples, 
with my life, that would be a great goal to have. Huge. Right? So to be discipled by somebody, to disciple others, and then to be reaching people for Jesus. You can't really argue with that that's Christianity. But um, even Cesar Castellano, who came to Miami, tried to do the same thing in, in the United States, and it didn't. I think he grew a church to a little bit over a thousand people. Never really exploded like it did in Colombia because cult, the culture is different. Now, you see all across the globe these small group movements that are spreading like wildfire um, based upon the same basic principles of getting in community and making your own disciples, pouring into people's lives and having them do the same. But Western culture has this pace of life thing that's just in the way. So we swung the other way. After we did the G12 groups, we did something that was very popular at the time called free market cells, which basically said, do whatever you want. <laughs> if you want to have a biking group, have a biking group. If you want to have a quilting group, have a quilting group. If you want to, you know, do Bible study, do Bible study. If you want to have a weekly appointment where you watch the Steelers game together, and then while you're together doing life, pray. So it went from everybody should have 12 disciples to, hey, whatever you want to do when you get together with your friends, just make it a little more spiritual. And so we swung the pendulum in the other direction. And then eventually we landed on, let's all come to the church on a Wednesday night and have small groups like we used to. And so we never have really landed on what is the appropriate challenge for people to be in groups, because one was way too intense and probably now what we realize is that our um, invitation for people to be involved in community is way too shallow now. And so somewhere we have to start to say, look, this is not enough. What we're doing is not enough. Look, if you really want to grow spiritually, if you really want to live in a way that's going to help you grow spiritually, you need to be in some kind of regular community where you're, where you're you know, really engaging with people in what it means to follow Christ. Right. And so I think we're... We're turning the knob towards hotter, <laughs> yeah. right? But but without trying to go crazy like we did before and putting unrealistic expectations on the culture that we're in today. Because, you know, most people, some people have two jobs and they're raising a family and it's really tough to squeeze it in. But what we're saying is you still have to follow Jesus, yeah, right? You still have to be in community. Figure We got to figure it out. So whatever it takes, we got to figure this out somehow because it has to be more of a priority than it is right now. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've talked a lot about you know the idea of fake Christians, which is really people that maybe aren't building their lives on the principles of following Jesus. We've talked about some of the failures of modern discipleship. And I think that last part we're talking about is, is the false prophet. Yeah, so now you want to get to the dream. Yeah, go ahead. All right, I had two prophetic dreams. Let me just describe, you know, the Bible talks about how the Holy Spirit will give us um, will give us um, dreams and visions. And, uh, and, and so, um, you know, I was, during the 2020 year, uh, I had gone to sleep and I had, a, um, I, had a, I had a dream. I woke up and I knew it was a Holy Spirit's prompted dream. And the first dream was this. I had walked out into what seemed to be a jungle. There was a big pavilion in the middle of the jungle with vines growing over it. And there was all of these animals that you'd see on a safari, giraffes, monkeys, hippos, lions, etc. And I was fascinated by everything I saw. I was like, wow, this is such a crazy scene. And then there was a baby that was in a little cradle at the corner of this pavilion. And all of a sudden, a tiger jumped out from behind the pavilion, grabbed the baby and started running away. 
And then I heard the Holy Spirit say, stop watching this happen, go get that baby. Mm. And so I, I, in, I, in the dream, uh, just begin to pray in the name of Jesus, and the tiger dropped the baby, and I went and picked it up and put it back in a safe place. And I interpreted that to mean 2020 was like a jungle scene. It was wild. There was stuff going around all over, and it was fascinating at sometimes to watch and almost a bit intimidating. And then that dream sort of awakened me to say, but there are spiritual battles going on, and the, the, the child, that which is my responsibility to care for, my family, my church family, needs me to stop watching what's happening and to rise up and take my authority in prayer and to pray into the situation so that those who are at risk are no longer vulnerable and are safe. I actually shared that with the church, and people rallied to that. We had a tremendous time of prayer that day, and so that was dream number one. Okay, prophetic dream number two happened just a few months ago, where, um, again, uh, I was now walking into a house— and a lot of the people from the church were there. Some of my, my, in my natural family, I saw some of you guys there, some of the people from the church. It was like a big party. I don't know what the occasion was. People were eating and laughing. And I walked in, and this is the crazy part. I walked in with a baby, a baby tiger, and a, and a wolf beside me. <laughs> I know it sounds like a crazy dream. <laughs> and as I walked in, some of the people said, hey, you better be careful about that wolf. If you're not careful, it'll eat the baby. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, no, this wolf's tame. It's not a big deal. Uh, it's going to be okay. And so I set the baby down, and as soon as I did, the wolf, the wolf grabbed the child. And so I again rose up and rebuked the wolf and protected the baby. And then I was instructed, I felt like I was instructed to take the wolf and kick it out of the house. So I opened the door, put it on the porch, and it then showed itself to be almost afraid, like it was shivering, and you know, kind of leaned up against the door, and then the dream ended. And so here, here's my interpretation. I think the house represents the church, the people of God. The baby represents those who are vulnerable and at risk. I think the tiger represents the world system and the principalities and powers that are trying to bring destruction on the world both in both dreams. And the baby tiger, I think, was just that that's always a potential for it to happen. So I was thinking, well, who, who's the wolf? How did the wolf get in the house? Why did I feel like it was okay for it to be around? And so I started to look it up in the Scripture, and in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets, because they are like ferocious wolves in sheep's clothing. And then he goes on to say, By your fruit, their fruit, you'll know who they are. So the awareness became, I, there, are, there are some wolves in the house. And like you said, you can't be soft, all right? So you can't be soft with false prophets or false teaching. It has no place in the house or else it will also consume those who are vulnerable. So the, the thing that I have been processing is, what are the threats to the, 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 the church and to those vulnerable in the church that are coming from sources that are actually teaching things that sound correct, but are not in, in any way related to what Jesus taught. And how do we sort through the, the genuine Christian teaching and the counterfeit that we see being promoted all over social media and in so many places, because I think one of the reasons why Christians are becoming superficial, or I'll use another word, syncretistic, meaning that they're mixing their Christianity with 
other ideas that really have no relationship to truth, biblical truth, um, is because there's so many voices out there that are shouting very loudly, and it's hard for someone who doesn't have the proper filter to know what is a ferocious wolf that's trying to devour your 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 faith and a gen, the genuine shepherd that's trying to protect your soul. And I think one of the things that I need to do and we need to do as pastors is figure out how do we help people distinguish the counterfeit from the genuine article as we make disciples. So for you, this sounds like it might be particularly a challenge because that wolf that you had like is whimpering on the porch and you had to kind of kick it out. Yeah. So <clears throat> so I guess how do you address... the Holy Spirit was saying, stop being soft with things you know that are dangerous. Right. So, and so now you say, well, what are those things? I'm still in the process of identifying that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So how do you recommend that pastors or leaders do handle something like this? Like if there is a wolf that you've identified that is potentially threatening somebody's faith walk, you know, they're... they're you have to, to teach Jesus. on it. So this is what we've talked about in past podcasts. My, there are certain sermon series now that I do that are way more robust and confrontative to cultural uh, concepts than what I was doing in the past. So I think we have to c- come at it head on with a balanced, grace-filled, but biblical perspective so that we can expose things that are seeping into the church world that have no place in the kingdom. And that means you you got to gear up a little bit. Like, okay, the shepherd... so. This is this is how we've pastored. This is how you just described the way we've pastored. We got all these sheep out here, and we're in a very nice fertile field, and this is great. Everybody's eating the grass, and they're drinking from the quiet waters. And, you know, occasionally a sheep wanders off, and you got to go find that sheep. But we're basically in, in a neutral territory here where there's really very little threats, because here we are in the United States of America where everything's very favorable to Christianity. And, and then all of a sudden, the last two we realized, we, years we realized, there are bears and lions and predators out there <laughs> yeah. around every corner that if you, if you don't watch are coming to, to consume your middle school uh, you know, re, stu, youth ministry student. Right. And they're, gonna, they're going to entice them down a path that will make them hate God, Without run from the church, yeah. and maybe even become suicidal. Right. Okay, yes. so like, oh my goodness, what just happened? Like, I thought we were in a nice, easy field, and now there's wolves everywhere trying to, dis- to destroy the flock. And some of them are becoming, pulling some of the sheep over here and saying, come with me, we're going to do something completely different. And and so I, I think I have, like... God has given me eyes to see the fact that this is way more hostile territory than what I was thinking, and that if I don't do the job of teaching biblical truth and kicking out the stuff that is false, I am not doing my job as a shepherd, which is, I guess, a part of the discipleship process, is skillfully dividing the Word in a way that people know the truth from the air and the dangers that potentially lurk out there that can be so destructive to their soul. So for anybody who's curious... How far in your loading process are you of knowing what those wolf ideas are? Yeah, so, um, well, we're doing a two-part series at Allison Park Church. If you're listening to this, you probably heard part one, if you're part of Allison Park Church, called Sheepskins, is what we're calling it, wolves, wolves in sheep's clothing, right? So 
Um, in, in the part two of the message, there are actually five things that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that are the ways that we judge um, false things versus true things. And so that grid is how I want to start to look at things, the Jesus grid of false things versus true things. It's at the end of chapter 7, if you want to look at. By the way, there's this really interesting verse that's in in the first message that I'm preaching on this. So Jesus goes through this whole thing, because I think this is, our culture resonates with the beginning of Matthew chapter 7. Don't judge or you'll be judged. We don't want to be judgy Christians. I mean, that's why people hate Christians, is that they're judgy. Because the way you measure, God's going to measure judgment back to you, it says. And then be careful, you don't look at someone else's speck in their eye when you have a plank in yours, you're such a hypocrite. So don't be judgy. And then the very next verse, verse 6, you know what verse 6 says? Do I know? Yeah. Uh, as, you just go ahead. I, I, I think I do. He but. says, <laughs> don't take what's holy and give it to the dogs. Mm, I did not know And that. don't yeah. take your pearls and give it to the pigs. That's the most judgy thing that you could ever say. Jesus, don't judge. But by the way... If, if you judge someone to be a dog or a pig, <laughs> be careful what you trust to them because they can be dangerous and they wouldn't know what to do with it. So there obviously is a balance to don't judge because he says, don't judge, don't judge, don't be hypocrite, don't point out flaws in other people. And at the same time, he says, but don't just trust anybody. Don't take what's precious to you and just give it to somebody that's going to trample on it. I mean, you have to be, so don't judge, but you do need to discern because not everything out there is equal. Not all truths are equal. Not all truths are correct. Not all people are, are really um, representing what Jesus is, because then in verse 14, just a few verses later, he says, be careful. There are people that are dressed up like sheep that are really ferocious wolves, and they want to eat you alive. So that sounds very judgy to me. So there's a balance here. Don't judge. Don't be a hypocrite. But you better put your discernment on because there's a lot of things out there that can be hostile to your faith. And then he ends with these five tests. And so that you'll have to listen to the message to get those. But I think I, think I want to be very careful labor, labeling anybody a wolf, because I think that's kind of harsh. So I don't think we're going to call any person a wolf, even though the Bible would say false prophets. So there probably are people in that category. But I do think we can look and we can discern based upon the grid Jesus gives of what's real and what's counterfeit. And so for me, I want to get that grid established. And then I can start to look for individual things that are trends in in what people are believing today that need to be addressed. So it sounds like by the end of this year, you'll probably have some... Yeah, I'll probably be loaded. <laughs> you got to go at, which I am so interested to watch you do because it feels so counter to your nature. I don't think you're soft for the record. Soft, you are soft. I was, you, I was exaggerating. Yeah. I know, I know. But, but yeah, that'll be very interesting to watch how you do it. And honestly, I think all of us are going to take the example because it does feel tricky. There are, I mean, probably to anybody listening, there are some things that I'm sure you can identify. This is clearly not Christianity. Yeah. You know, you could pick, and probably, yeah, whatever side of ideologies you tend to fall on, you probably see more of some than the others. But but I think, like, being able to use your grid that you're talking about, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to yeah, kind of hear and I you. Think, I think we do need to really, one of the false teachings that's out there is this idea, so Jesus was tender 
loving, compassionate, encouraging, but in no way flexible. So the idea that Jesus and his theology it bends and flexes with what a person feels about whatever, no. Yeah. We have painted a flexible Jesus yeah. to people. Right. Like, Jesus is willing to negotiate with you. Because he loves you that much. Yeah, he is not negotiate. He right. does not negotiate. Yeah. He is not flexible. <laughs> yeah. He is as demanding as anything that makes Jesus flexible is idolatry. Yes. Wow. It's creating a vision of Jesus that does not exist and it does not serve him well. Yeah. Because Jesus is the Lord and master of the universe. He's proved that through his resurrection. Yeah. And he does not want to negotiate with you. He wants you to follow him. And that is a massive shift. And I think at times, because we have preached in a marketed, consumeristic way, we've almost presented these things as these are Jesus's five tips for how to live your best life. And if you'll follow them, it'll be so beneficial for you. And by the way, he loves you. And you just bring your life as it is, and he'll it'll morph and shift to serve you. No, no, no. If you really want your best life, you got to lay it down, and you got to follow him. And he will not negotiate with you. He will dictate to you. And he will do it in the most positive, loving, transformative way possible. But he is, you, you are not a Lord without being directive. Yeah. And, and so our culture needs the Jesus, the inflexible, non-negotiable, tender, compassionate, grace-filled, encouraging Jesus. Yeah. And I think we have probably at times made him seem like he is Mr. Nice Guy Flexible, which he is the greatest person to ever live. He is, he is the God of all creation um, and the most loving, sacrificial friend you will ever have, but not flexible. So <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this, this sort of last question. How do you strike the balance then as we teach people the inflexibility of what it means to follow Jesus? How do you, in a non-harsh way, teach people to be able to to have an idea are you actually you you always say that doesn't mean you're not going to heaven well how would you know like how do we teach in a way of well that's where i can't judge that right okay, so sure. i can't judge that um i can preach the truth i think the way jesus did it this is kind of kind of how i see his approach in the, in the gospels he would throw down the truth not try to persuade anybody and walk away. And he wasn't trying to say, by the way, if you want to come along, we can work on the requirements here. Like, I, you know, I'm looking for people to follow me, and I know I came across a little bit intense here. If you want to follow me, just come on, let's talk one-on-one about it. Jesus really was, look, this is, this is the way that it is. And he would walk away. And if, if no one came, he kept walking. Mm. So I think we have to be comfortable with the idea that when we present, we do our best to present the balanced version of the sacrificial, loving, tender, inflexible, non-negotiable Jesus, mm. that some people don't want to come along. So, and so it's okay. Like you say, I don't like you anymore, Pastor Jeff. I don't want to follow you. I don't want me to be... I, would, I think I'm going to find another church. Okay. I, I am not trying to create some kind of a weird fundamentalist judgy situation. But there are some things for me that are non-compromising. And if that's why we part ways, because you see it differently, okay, I will follow Jesus. I'm saying to you as your pastor, follow me as I follow Christ. And if you don't want to come this way, 
I'm not really going to be held accountable for how large my church was. I'm going to be held accountable. Did I follow Jesus? Yeah. And so if my if my ministry shrinks uh, because I'm being more true to who Christ is, I think that's being more effective. Yeah. And maybe that's not always the standards we've used to judge our ministries. Now, there's the other side of that: who people who are, feel heroic because they are just plain mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And <laughs> like, I'm a non-compromiser because I preach the gospel. And then people leave and say, no, you're just mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't feel like you're following Jesus. I think you just preach mean. Like, I don't think we want to be mean, but I also think we need to have enough conviction about what we value and believe that we're willing to die for it if we have to. Okay, but so here's, let me rephrase then, because you're almost answering my question, <laughs> but I still feel unsatisfied. Okay. <laughs> if, if somebody, okay, so I think one danger could be somebody could live as a cultural Christian and never know they actually aren't following Jesus. And when they stand before God, eventually he he would be like, I never knew yeah, you. I think that's the Holy Spirit's job, isn't it? I think there's some things that are my job and your job as pastors, and there's other things that's the Holy Spirit's well, job. Well, but just, so, so to live in such a way that makes people <laughs> challenge, to preach in such a way that yeah. they're counting, encountering the truth— but I don't have to convince anybody. No, no. Okay, wait. But but let me just just follow yeah, me for a second. Okay, maybe you have the answer just, to that. I'm not saying I do, <laughs> but just follow me for a second. I individual judgy, you specifically are not following Jesus. Okay, I understand why you stay away from that. But like, where is the point when you would say, "Hey, you need to." Everybody needs to examine themselves and realize if you're not doing some of these things. Well, that's you may I think that's be... the filter of the five uh, tests. So one of the things Jesus said is. So this is some of the things that happen at the end of chapter 7. You can tell by their fruit. Yeah. Look at the fruit of your life. If you have thorns that are persistently showing up in your life and not and not genuine fruit, then that's a, that should be concerning to you. Are you being obedient? Because he said, some will say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we lay hands on the sick and they, they recover? And Jesus will say, I don't even know who you are because you haven't done the things I asked you to do. Mm. So obedience is one of those factors. Um, at the end, he says, two men built two houses, one built on Jesus' teachings, one did not. So, so you have to evaluate, um, am I seeing fruit in my life, or am I just showing up at religious events? Am I being obedient to what Jesus asked, or am I just going through a cultural version of religion? Right. Like, there is, there is some tests that Jesus gives that I think are better asked when you ask yourself this. Yes, Than sure. me saying, you don't have fruit. Absolutely. You are not obedient. That's where it gets mean and judgy. Totally, I But agree. if you say, yeah. am I bearing fruit? Am I obedient? Am I building my life on Jesus' teachings? Do I see change in my life? Like These are some questions that are tests about where we are spiritually and... I think test about where the people were listening to now who might be ferocious wolves in sheep's clothing because we have to we have to evaluate the fruit on the vine from the people that we are connected to. I think I just in my generation where truth is so often called subjective and it's hard to find where the exact line is and you know and I know you know we can't know everything especially about theology or the Bible but I think there's a part of me and probably a lot of people like me that hungers for even like not not necessarily for you to be mean and say that person is not fruit, <laughs> yeah. but to be able to finish the statement. If if these things are all true, you you really 
are not following Jesus, like that end of it. If you do, you know, do you know what I'm saying? If then, yeah. and then, well, if then. you and if you're if you have a relationship with someone and you've spent time trying to disciple them and they still are resisting, and you wanted to say that in a very tender way across the table with someone, I think that could happen. Very, very cautious about doing that from a pulpit. Okay, okay, yeah, because because there are so many people that just show up in the world. They're wounded. They've been abused by somebody. They they're dealing with an addiction. They're on their last leg. They show up at church and they say, please give me a little bit of hope this weekend. Yeah, okay. And then you come out and you say, you are an evildoer. You know, yeah. you're a whitewashed wall. Get out of here. Like, I think that that's the part that makes me aware that, okay, in a vacuum, just dealing with objective concepts, I agree with you. We have to be very solid on truth. But in, in now bringing it, the gospel, even in all of its edginess, to someone that's been mauled by life has to be delivered in a way that's sensitive to where they are, or else we end up running over the very people Jesus died for and loved so much. So this is the balance of it. So so there's got to be conviction and challenge, and then there has to be compassion and grace, and Mm. all of that has to be mixed together. And I do think that at least in the environments that I've been in, the pendulum has swung away from the challenge and conviction side, and we need to get it back sure. without letting go of the environments that we've created where people feel like they're welcome, that they're being communicated to in a way that they can understand, that we're trying to serve them and not just put pressure on them. And yet the appropriate level of challenge that meets where people are today in the culture that we live in so that we're not overreacting to yeah. this. Yeah. I mean, that is, poof, wow, Jesus, help us. Yeah. It's not an easy thing. And if you're a spiritual leader or a pastor, I know you know what I'm talking about. This is something we're all wrestling through. When we promise that as we experiment and try to figure some stuff out, we'll share what we're learning with you. So that if, and we would love to hear from you if you have resources or you've done some things that are working. Yeah. Well, in honor of Bruce Edwards, you mentioned earlier, that's good, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> that's good, Jeff. Yeah. Wow. That's intense. Whew, I feel heavy after this episode, but it, it's 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 a needed conversation that we are working through ourselves as, as Allison Park Church. Yeah, um, and we hope that that you're wrestling with this uh, with this stuff with us. So again, we just want to thank you for joining us as always. If you're watching on YouTube or on social media, um, we would love it if you would like, subscribe, share, because um, we, we would love to get the word out. Um, but yeah, thank you for joining us. We'll catch you guys next time. <laughs>